Okay. Have you noticed over the course of your lifetime that people can be really fickle? Have you noticed that? Those who are popular today, uh, chances are they won't be popular tomorrow. Those who were popular yesterday really aren't popular today. And so whether you're looking at music or you're looking at movie stars or you're looking at politicians, who was popular yesterday, in all likelihood they're not popular today. Case in point, 1991, President of the United States at the time was George H.W. Bush. In February of 91, the first Gulf War comes to an end. They do the approval ratings. President George H.W. Bush has an approval rating of 89%, the highest approval rating of any president in history up to that point in time. There was a presidential election coming the very next year in 1992, and many people across the country were thinking, there is no way that this guy could lose his bid for re-election. He's so popular. Sixteen months after being the most popular president in U.S. history, his approval rating had gone from 89% to 29%. In the summer of 92, he had one of the lowest presidential approval ratings in history, barely higher than President Nixon after he resigned after Watergate. And so from 89% to 29% in 16 months, and no one could believe it. Well, we should believe it because popularity just doesn't last. And one of the greatest examples of that is Jesus' final week. We're going to look today at the first day of Holy Week. We call it Palm Sunday. On that Sunday, Jesus is going to mount that little donkey and ride down through the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem. And as he does so, thousands of people will scream, Hosanna! He, hands down, will be on that day the most popular man in Israel. And that's saying something. On that day, he's the most popular man in the capital city of Jerusalem. Yet just five days later, all of those adoring fans are going to step back into the shadows and let others crucify him. He goes from being hero to zero in five days. And so we're going to look at the first day in this Holy Week, as it's often called, Palm Sunday, beginning in verse 12 of John chapter 12. So if you're there, please say amen. amen. Let's pick up together. Please follow along in your Bibles, beginning in verse 12. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the feast heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the King of Israel! Jesus found a young donkey and sat upon it. As it is written, Do not be afraid, O daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming to you, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. Now, the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had given this miraculous sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. May God bless us as we study his word today and apply it to our lives. Well, in Jesus' day, there were three great Jewish feasts that the Jewish people were all required to attend. They had to attend, first up on the calendar, Passover. Number two, 40 days later, was Pentecost. Actually, 50 days later, excuse me. 50 days later was Pentecost. And then later in the year was the Feast of Tabernacles. And so the Jewish people, no matter where they lived, no matter where on the planet they were, they were supposed to celebrate these three festivals. But if they lived more than a day's walk from Jerusalem, by and large, they would just celebrate those festivals in their own hometown, wherever they happened to live at any given time. But it was the Jewish desire to go at least once in their lifetime to Jerusalem to celebrate the one of those three feasts that was the greatest of all. Of those three great feasts, the greatest hands down was the Feast of Passover. And every Jew, no matter where they lived on the planet, they wanted at least once to emigrate, to, to go as a pilgrim to Jerusalem and celebrate Passover there. In fact, even today, Orthodox Jews will often say this, this year, here, but next year, in Jerusalem. 
There's that longing even today among Orthodox Jews that maybe next year I can go to Jerusalem for the Passover. So here in John 12, Passover is just five days away. Hundreds of thousands of Jews from around the world are descending upon Jerusalem for this holy feast. And so some historians think that on this particular Passover, there may have been as many as two million people in and around Jerusalem. And so there's a whole lot of people. And so when we ask that question, how many are lining the roads as Jesus is coming down into Jerusalem on that little donkey? It probably wasn't a few hundred. It was probably thousands of people who were along the road seeing Jesus as he was on that donkey. All four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, record for us Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And the other three gospel writers include a few details that John doesn't mention. For example, you noticed in verse 14 that we just read, in verse 14 John says that Jesus found a young donkey and he sat upon it. Wouldn't you like to know a little bit more about this donkey and how he found it? Well, Matthew, Mark, and Luke answer those questions for us. They tell us a little bit more about how he secured this donkey. Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell us that Jesus sent ahead of them two disciples to go into the town ahead of them. And he said, tied in a doorway, you will find a little foal of a donkey. Untie him and bring him to me. If the owner of the donkey says, what are you doing with my donkey? Just tell him the Lord needs them. And he'll be okay with that. And so that's exactly what happens. They go, they see the donkey, all right, they untie it. They start to leave. The owner says, what are you doing with my donkey? That was like the worst accent ever, wasn't it? And, and they tell him exactly what Jesus tell them, told them to tell him. They, the Lord needs it. And they say, okay. And so Matthew gives us an extra little detail. It wasn't just the foal of the donkey that they took. He says that the mom of that little donkey they took as well. So there were two donkeys. And so Matthew, Mark, and Luke give us these details. Jesus' disciples, they place a few of their cloaks on the donkey as a makeshift uh, saddle for him. Uh, they, they help Jesus mount up, and, and Jesus rides up that short road between Bethany and Jerusalem, and he crests the, the little hill of the Mount of Olives and descends down into the city riding this little donkey. And as Jesus is riding the donkey and the crowds are along the road, they begin shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed be the king of Israel. Well, what's going on here? Well, there's a lot going on in this little scene. For starters, it's worth noting that this cheering crowd was rather diverse. Uh, first of all, we had that crowd that had been with Jesus in Bethany when he'd had that meal. And remember, we looked at this last week. Mary uh, broke that alabaster jar and anointed his feet with perfume and wiped his feet with her hair. That great meal, there were a lot of locals from Jerusalem that had come down into that town of Bethany, two miles outside of Jerusalem, to see Jesus. They heard he was there, and they had come to see Lazarus because they had heard that just a few weeks later, Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead, even though he'd been in the grave for four days. Remember, he wasn't just dead, he was really dead. And Jesus raised him from the dead. They wanted to see Lazarus with their own two eyes. And so we have, first of all, this crowd that as Jesus mounts that donkey, they're with him and they go with him into Jerusalem. Secondly, we have uh, many other Jewish pilgrims that had come for the feast. Most of those were probably from the northern region of Galilee, where Jesus had done most of his ministry over the last three years. Some of those who were in Jerusalem probably had seen him take those five little biscuits and two sardines and feed the 5,000. Some of them had probably seen him open the eyes of the blind and heal the lepers and, and heal the sick. And so they were in Jerusalem. They were part of those lining the streets and cheering him on. Third, we know there were Jewish leaders there, particularly the Pharisees. Uh, they were the, the biggest Jesus haters in Jerusalem. They hated Jesus. And so they're spying on him, looking for an opportunity to arrest him because they wanted to kill him. They were in the crowd. They're lining the streets. And then finally, we find out down in verse 20 that there were some Greeks in the crowd. We'll talk about them a little bit later. So there's this very diverse crowd, largely filled with people who are curious about Jesus. Just because there were thousands lining the streets doesn't mean that there were thousands of committed followers of Jesus. Most of these people likely were just curious and it didn't take most of them very long to jump on the bandwagon and join the Jesus cheering hysteria. The crowd waves palm branches. They're waving palm branches. They're ripping them off of trees around town. 
Probably had some bald palm trees after they were done. But they're pulling down the palm branches, waving them to Jesus. We know that palm branches were a national symbol of victory. So they were, they were strategic with the specific branches they chose. They were a symbol of victory in Israel. The crowd shouts, Hosanna. What does that mean? Hosanna means, please save us. Save us now. That's what Hosanna means. Please save us. Save us now. Say that with me. Please save us. Save us now. Some of us have had those times in our lives, right? We're going through some stuff, and it's like, Jesus, save us now. Maybe it's in the car. Take the wheel. Save me now. I've told you about my mom. She is famous for this. Jesus, help! Her two-word prayer. And so many times, guess what Jesus does in response? Jesus helps. That's just kind of what he does. And so they're crying out, Hosanna, please save us, save us now. But they don't just say that. They follow that word Hosanna by saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, that's an interesting little phrase. It's actually a quote from Psalm 118, verse 26. So catch this. At a young age, every Jewish boy was asked to memorize Psalm chapter 113 all the way through Psalm chapter 118. So that's six chapters. Psalm 113 to Psalm 118. And together, these six psalms were called the Hallel. Say that with me. The Hallel. What does that mean? It means praise. That's why we say the word Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Yah, the suffix at the end of that word is short for Yahweh, the holiest name of God. So the Jews would cry out, praise the Lord. Hallelujah. And so that's what hallelujah means. And so the hallel was the praise, Psalm 113 to 118. Not only did Jewish boys have to memorize this as little tykes, this particular week, Passover week, the Jewish choir there at the temple would sing the hallel. So they're singing the six chapters. As you go to the temple, Passover week, you hear these verses being sung by the choir. And then when they would come later in the week for that Passover meal and they would sit down and have the unleavened bread and, and have the lamb that was, uh, was going to be eaten as part of that uh, Passover setter meal, when they would do that, they would actually as a family at the dinner table sing the Hallel or speak the Hallel during different parts of the meal. And so here Passover week, they're saying, save us now. And they start to chant part of that Hallel, that, that part, Psalm 118.26, is at the very end of the Hallel. It's the last chapter of those six chapters that they would hear throughout the week during Passover. And those words specifically are, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, there's one more thing, another important detail to keep in mind. Jesus is riding a donkey. Was that an accident? You know, Jesus is there in Bethany. You know what? It's two miles to Jerusalem. I'm a little bit tuckered today. You know, after all, a few weeks ago, I had to raise a guy from the dead that was pushing up daisies for four days. And you know what? I, I just ate too much, and, and my, my, my feet still stink like perfume from the lady wiping my feet with her hair yesterday. And you know what? I, I, just, I just need, can you find a horse? I can't find a horse anywhere, Jesus. Well, how about a camel? I can't find a camel. Well, find something. Well, we found a donkey. You know, is this just kind of happenstance? Absolutely not. It's strategic, isn't it? Zechariah 9, verse 9, one of the last books in the Old Testament. Zechariah is one of the minor prophets. Speaking of minor prophets, I hope you join us this Wednesday for our study of the minor prophets. Zechariah 9, verse 9 says this. Rejoice, O greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Well, that sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? The Jewish people were familiar with this prophecy, and they knew that it was referring to the beast that the Messiah would ride into Jerusalem. So you take all of these details and all of this symbolism together, and we think about them one at a time. The crowds are waving palm branches that were a symbol of military victory. And they're shouting the words of a psalm that anticipated the Messiah's coming. And they're saying, save us, please save us now. And Jesus is fulfilling a very specific prophecy about the Messiah and the animal that that Messiah would ride into Jerusalem. So there is no doubt that many people lining the streets on Palm Sunday believed that Jesus was the promised Messiah. 
They believed that he was the Christ who would bring deliverance to Israel. But there was a problem. The problem was their idea of the Messiah's mission was completely different than God's idea of the Messiah's mission. Amen? They thought the Christ was coming to battle Rome. But God's plan was for the Christ to battle sin and death. They thought the Christ would carry a a sword, but God's plan was for the Christ to carry a cross. They thought the Christ was coming to kill, but God's plan was for the Christ to be killed, right? Even Jesus' disciples didn't understand this. John tells us that in verse 16. They didn't know what the heck was going on. They didn't understand. They were putting the two and two together. Only after Jesus returned to heaven and the Holy Spirit descended upon them and opened their minds did they really understand Jesus' mission and how many dozens of prophecies he had actually fulfilled. It was only then that they understood. Look again at verse 19. When Jesus' biggest group of haters, the Pharisees, see the crowd of thousands of people waving the palm branches and reaching this feverish pitch, they really get a bit frustrated, don't they? You can kind of picture them just kind of throwing up their hands and, this is getting us nowhere. Uh, Look how the the whole world is going out to him. And, And so they're upset, they're frustrated, they're looking for an opportunity to arrest him, but they can't arrest him on Palm Sunday. There's thousands of people in the way with their palm branches. They can't arrest Jesus, and so they're so frustrated, and so they use this hyperbole here, this exaggeration, saying the whole world is going out to him. You know what's kind of funny about that? It was exaggeration, wasn't it? The whole world wasn't literally going out to see Jesus, right? But they didn't realize how prophetic their words really were. Because think about what happens five days later. Just five days later, Jesus is hanging on the cross. He says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And we know Jesus wasn't just speaking about those at the foot of the cross gambling for his clothes. Forgiveness was being offered to the whole world. You look at what we've seen so far in the first 11 chapters of John. John chapter 1, John the Baptist sees Jesus coming, and he says, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the... Huh, interesting. He didn't say, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of Israel and Israel only. The Jewish people and the Jewish people only. He doesn't say that, does he? You look a little bit further in chapter 3. For God so loved the Jewish people. Right, yeah. No, that's not what it says, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever lives within the borders of Israel believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. No, that whoever believes in him, whoever means whoever, shall not perish but have eternal life. John chapter 8, Jesus says, I am the light of the the city i'm standing in right now that's not what he says i am the light of the world jesus is a universal savior jesus is a multinational savior and so what a powerful thing that they say look the whole world's coming out to him on one hand they were exaggerating but on the other hand it was a prophetic statement that was they were oblivious to it was over their head they didn't realize that they were speaking the truth that on that good friday five days later jesus would draw all men women and children unto himself and so here we are with the gift of hindsight two thousand years later and we know that people of every tongue and tribe and nation have accepted jesus christ as savior and lord no matter if they're male or female black brown or white young or old rich or poor it doesn't matter jesus offers salvation to people everywhere. What a wonderful, wonderful Savior we serve. Well, John gives us a taste of that multinational ministry of Jesus Christ and his multinational reach beginning in verse 20. So let's pick up where we left off there. Verse 20 here in John chapter 12. Now, there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the feast. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, With a request, Uh, sir, they said, uh, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me. Where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. 
Now my heart is troubled. And what shall I say, Father? Save me from this hour? No. It was for this very reason that I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it. And I will glorify it again. Hmm. So good. Jesus' enemies exclaimed in verse 19, The whole world has gone after him. And John immediately gives us an example of that in verses 20 to 22. Is some Greeks come to one of Jesus' disciples and ask to see Jesus. They want a private meeting with Jesus. Now, there's been a lot of speculation over the centuries about who these Greeks were. Were they converts to Judaism? In those days, a, a Greek could become Jewish, but he had to jump through some certain religious hoops. So he had to agree that he was going to follow the Old Testament law, but much more important than that, for the Jewish people and the Jewish leaders, if you wanted to become a convert to Judaism, if you were male, you had to be circumcised. It didn't matter how old you were, you had to be circumcised. And you also had to be baptized in water. And so were they converts to Judaism? Had they gone through uh, those rituals? Probably not. Some say they were God-fearers. A God-fearer was a technical term in those days. We come across it also in Acts chapter 10. You remember Cornelius the centurion. He was called a God-fearer. A God-fearer was one who looked very Jewish. He obeyed the Jewish laws, the moral laws, the ceremonial laws, but he had stopped short of actually being circumcised and baptized. And so he wasn't quite Jewish yet. Some think these Greeks may have been God-fearers. I'm not even sure they were that. Others say possibly they were just tourists. Because in those days, it was very common for the Greeks, if they had the money and they had the time, they would travel around the world. Because remember, Greeks were polytheistic. They believed in many different gods. And so they were pluralistic. They believed in all sorts of different gods and religions. And so some of these Greeks, if they had the time and the money, would travel the world learning about different gods they'd never heard of and learning about new religions. And so maybe these were just Greek travelers in Jerusalem because they knew about Passover. They didn't know much about what it was all about, but they knew the Jewish people felt it was a really important holiday. And so they were in Jerusalem to experience this Passover, to find out about this Yahweh God and to find out about this Jewish religion. And so we're not told for sure, but one way or another, they come across Jesus and they want to meet with him. Uh, some Bible scholars have wondered if they overheard Jesus, what he said at the temple the very next day. Because on Monday, the other gospel writers tell us what happened on Monday, the day after Palm Sunday. Remember, Jesus goes to the temple and he ain't happy. Remember that? He goes to the temple and what does he see? In the temple courts, you've got the money changers. They're ripping people off, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, three quarters totals a dollar. Yeah, that's right. So here's your three quarters making change for your dollar. Uh, let's see, you gave me a 20. Okay, all right, here you go. Here's uh, two fives, two fives. That'll, that'll take care of you for your 20 you gave me. So they're ripping people off, the money changers are. And then you've got the people selling the doves and selling the sheep, and they're ripping people off too. And Jesus gets ticked, and he drives out the money changers, and he drives out the merchants. And so maybe these Greeks are there on Monday, and their eyes are popping. They can't believe what they're seeing. One man, single-handedly, is driving out dozens of money changers and dozens of merchants. How does one man do that? This guy's special. We want to see him. And maybe they overheard what Jesus said when he is shouting in those temple courts, driving out the money changers. Remember what he said? My father has said, this house is to be a house of prayer for all nations. And maybe that clicked in their ears and in their minds. And so they wanted to see Jesus because this Yahweh God that they knew that the Jewish people worshipped was not evidently a God that's just for the Jews, but a God that is made available to people of every tongue and tribe and nation. We want to see Jesus. Can we talk to Jesus? Interestingly, John doesn't tell us for sure if that private meeting was set up. But what we can say, I believe is that what Jesus says in the upcoming verses was intended for both them and any Jews that were within earshot of what he said. It's kind of interesting, I think, the Greeks, they go to Philip in verse 21 and ask Philip, hey, we would like to see Jesus. Can we see him? Why did they go to Philip? We hardly ever read about Philip. Why didn't they go to Peter? 
Why didn't they go to James or John? Why did they go to Philip? Well, possibly because Philip had a Greek name. In fact, there were only two of the 12 disciples who had Greek names, Philip and Andrew. Both guys happen to be mentioned here when the Greeks want to talk to Jesus. So maybe they went to the guy who had a Greek name, Philip. They thought, hey, maybe he'll be friendly toward our cause. And I really like how Chuck Swindoll explains this. This, of course, isn't fact. It's just an idea. And he's guessing on this, but he, he might be right. Perhaps they were drawn to his Greek name, which means lover of horses. Philip then took them to Andrew, another Greek name, meaning manliness. And the pair took the proselytes to see Jesus. So kind of an interesting line of reasoning here. Uh, Maybe they go to Philip because, shoot, he's the lover of horses. And if he loves horses, maybe he'll be, you know, favorable to our cause. You know, it's not a bad idea. If you need someone to pull a favor for you, go to the guy that loves horses. He's probably a nice guy, right? And if the guy that loves horses is a little too chicken to try to get the favor carried out on his own, who does the guy who loves horses go to for reinforcements? He goes to the guy who's got the manliness. And so manliness is recruited by Philip. Philip is recruited by those Greeks. And together they go to Jesus and ask if he will meet with these Greeks. Well, if you look at verses 23 through 26, those verses I do believe were intended to be spoken to both the Greeks and those Jews who were within earshot. And after studying those four verses at length, William Barclay in his commentary draws this conclusion that I think is is, is a pretty good conclusion he's come to. Hardly any passage in the New Testament would come with such a shock to those who heard it for the first time as this passage here, verses 23 through 26. It begins with a saying which everyone would expect, and it finishes with a series of sayings which were the last things anyone would suspect. Is he right? Let's see. Take a look at that first verse. Is this a verse the crowd would have expected? Verse 23, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, I believe that is definitely something the crowd would have expected. They were ecstatic that Jesus was finally saying, what they had wanted him to say for a long time. All right, fellas, it's time for the Son of Man to be glorified. They knew that the Son of Man was a term used in the Old Testament prophetic book of Daniel, referring to the coming Messiah. So when he says Son of Man here, they know Jesus is talking about himself. So the time has come for the Son of Man, me, to be glorified. And there must have been some people in the crowd who said under their breath, well, it's about stinking time. We've been wanting this for months, Jesus. We've come to you and said, reveal yourself to the world. Reveal yourself as the Messiah. Speak plainly to the people. We want you to be glorified. We want you to come in all of your glory. Finally, you're agreeing that the time is right. We're so excited. Grab your sword, mount your steed, and lead us as an army to conquer the Roman garrisons. Just point us in the right direction and let us know who we're killing for you. They were ready for Jesus to be glorified, right? But in the very next verse, verse 24, Jesus bursts their bubble. Jesus lowers the boom. You see, his idea of being glorified was much, much different than their idea of being glorified. He says in verse 24, I tell you the truth. Unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Whoa, Jesus, wait a minute. Okay, time out. Time out. What are you talking about here? The only dying we want to hear about is some Roman soldier dying. We don't want to hear your talk about dying. You've just said you're going to be glorified. Now you're talking about dying. This doesn't make any sense. We're on board if you want to lead us as an army to overthrow the garrisons. We're not on board if you're talking about you dying. This doesn't make any sense. And then Jesus keeps moving in that direction in verse 25. It doesn't get any better for those who had other plans for Jesus. Verse 25, he says, The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Okay, Jesus, it's bad enough when you're talking about you dying. It sounds like now you're talking about me dying. You know what? If my kids are going to be free from Rome, maybe I'll lay down my life, but it doesn't seem like that's going to happen. 
So why are you talking about me dying? I, I was on board 30 seconds ago, but I'm not on board now. Are you serious? You don't want me to just lay down my life. You want me to actually hate my life? That doesn't make any sense. And then verse 26, whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honor the one who serves me. This statement in verse 26 was likely the straw that broke the camel's back for many in that crowd. And many probably said, we're done. We're washing our hands of you, Jesus. We're done. We cannot be on board for what you're saying here. We're ready to follow you. If you're leading a military charge against Rome, but we're not following a Savior who, according to what you've just been saying in these last few verses, it seems like, Jesus, you're just going to roll over and die. And we will not be on board with you on that. In verses 27 and 28, we're given a beautiful glimpse of Jesus' humanity. If you want to read a passage that shows Jesus as being very transparent, this is a great passage. Now my heart is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it was for this reason, this very reason, I came to this hour. So, Father, glorify your name. And for the third time in Jesus' three-and-a-half-year ministry, the audible voice of the Father in heaven is heard by those around Jesus. As the Father speaks and says, I have glorified my name, and I will glorify it again. Anyone who thinks that what Jesus went through on the cross was no big deal just doesn't get it. Jesus dreaded the thought of being beaten and scourged and nailed to a cross. He hated crucifixion. And if there was any other way for him to fulfill the Father's mission on earth without having to be crucified, he was saying in this moment, God, I, I want to take that instead. I want to take that path. I want to go that way. Sometimes, because Jesus is the Son of God, we try not to think too much about his humanity. But remember, Jesus wasn't just 100% God. He was 100% man. And so the emotions that you and I deal with, Jesus dealt with. Even the emotions that aren't very pleasant to talk about. Sometimes you might get depressed. Did you know Jesus sometimes got depressed too? Sometimes you get discouraged. Do you know Jesus sometimes got discouraged too? Sometimes you deal with fear. And we like to quote the verses, There is no fear in love because perfect love drives out fear. So any Christian should never fear. And do you know that Jesus feared? In this moment, this beautiful moment, Jesus is so transparent. Notice what he says again. Notice what he says. My heart is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. And then he catches himself, shakes his head and says, no, no. It was for this very reason I came to this hour. So, Father, glorify yourself. I think William Barclay says it so well. He writes this. John, the gospel writer, does not tell us of the agony of Gethsemane. Did you know that? If you flip through the next few chapters, you'll notice that before Jesus is arrested, John doesn't say anything about Gethsemane. That's what Matthew, Mark, and Luke do. They tell us about Gethsemane, where Jesus for hours is on his face in the dirt, crying out to God. He sweats like drops of blood because he is so stressed and overcome with thoughts of what's about to happen to him. John knows that Matthew, Mark, and Luke had already recorded that, so he doesn't record Gethsemane in his gospel account. But he does tell us what we just read. It is here that he shows us Jesus's, Jesus fighting his battle with his human longing to avoid the cross. No one wishes to die at 33. No one wishes to die upon a cross. There would have been no virtue in Jesus' obedience to God if it had come easily and without cost. And catch this, this is so good. Real courage does not mean not being afraid. It means being terribly afraid and yet doing the thing that ought to be done. That was the courage of Jesus. Was Jesus courageous when he allowed himself to be arrested and beaten and scourged and nailed to a cross? When he could have called 10,000 angels like that? to save him from all of it? Was he courageous because it was no big deal and it didn't scare him? No. He was courageous because it did scare him. 
It did trouble him. It did overwhelm him. And yet he did it anyway out of love for you and me and a desire to see the Father glorified. That's courage. Never think that if you are a courageous person, it's because you're not afraid. A courageous person is one who is very afraid, yet does the right thing anyway. I want to share with you three truths at the heart of our Christian faith. Now, these truths are I, I pulled from William Barclay's commentary. I've mentioned his name several times already, and I'm going to mention his name a few more times here. Normally, I would not mention one guy's name so much in a single sermon. Every once in a while, you'll hear I quote Barclay. It's one of the commentaries I usually go to every week in preparation for these messages on John. But just like any commentary I've ever read, I've never come across a commentator that I agree with 100%, 100% of the time. There's some things Barclay said in the commentary. I'm like, that's junk, and I ignore it, and I don't share it with you. But on this particular passage, and especially these three verses, verses 24, 25, 26, I believe his insights are brilliant. And so several of these points I give you are just going to be quotes from Barclay. I think they are so, so good. He takes these beautiful verses that the crowd did not like. Remember, they liked verse 23. I'm about to be glorified. Woo, we're on board for that. But then when he explains what that means in verses 24 through 26, they're not on board. Barclay does a beautiful job explaining some wonderful truths that we can glean from these three verses. Here they are, truth number one. We find this in verse 24. Say it with me. Only by death comes life. It's one of the reasons I want to quote him and not reword it myself, because if I said the same thing, it would take me about four times as many words. That is just so short and sweet. So I don't need to change it. Just let him say it. Only by death comes life. Think about that. Only by death comes life. Only by death comes life. What is true in agriculture is equally true in the spiritual realm, right? We all know anyone that's planted a garden, that seed has to die if you're going to grow a plant. We know it to be true in agriculture, but it's equally true in the spiritual realm. It was Tertullian the great 2nd century Christian leader who shared these words that have been quoted so many times over the last 2,000 years. Tertullian said, The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Okay, I want you to say that with me. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. One more time. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. So put yourself in Tertullian's shoes, sandals. So he's there at the end of the 2nd century, So it's been over a hundred years since the original 12 apostles walked this earth. And 11 of those 12 apostles were martyred for their faith in Jesus Christ, right? John was the only one of the 12 that died of old age. The other 11 were martyred for their faith. You say, what about Judas Iscariot? We're not counting him. He was replaced by Matthias. Matthias was also martyred for his faith. So 11 of the 12 were martyred there in the first century. So Tertullian, from a second century perspective, has the gift of hindsight to look back 100 years and say, okay, 11 of the 12 leaders of the church were massacred for Jesus. Did that stamp out the church? And what conclusion did he come to? Not only did it not snuff out the life of the church, their deaths caused the church to explode in growth around the world. And thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people were saved on the heels of their great sacrifice. Why? Because the death of the saints is the seed of the church. It was true in the first century. It was true in the second century. And it's been true over the last 2,000 years, hasn't it? In fact, in the 20th century, there were more Christians killed for their faith than all prior 19 centuries combined. And we find that in the heels of the 20th century, many time, many places, the church has grown around the world. We're so thankful for that. Barclay makes this excellent point. He writes, It is always because men and women have been prepared to die that the great things have lived. But it becomes more personal than that. It's sometimes only when we bury our personal aims and ambitions that we begin to be of real use to God. Think about that. Will you probably have to be killed for your faith in Jesus Christ? Probably not. Will any of you ever be incarcerated? 
for the rest of your life because of your faith in Jesus Christ? Probably not. So, hey, this doesn't apply to me, right? I don't have to die. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. You very much have to die if you're a follower of me. You do have to die. Will you ever face a firing squad? Probably not. But Christ has called you to die. Your old selfish way of living needs to die. Your old habits and priorities need to die. Your old addictions need to die. Your old crummy attitude, your old foul mouth, your old laziness, your old unforgiveness need to die. It's when our old nature dies that we can really live for God and be of real use to God. Let me just be bold enough to ask you this morning, do you want to be of real use to God? And let me just be absolutely brutally honest with you today. If you really truly want to be of use to God, something in you is going to have to die. Because only through death comes life. And so there's some things in me and there's some things in you that even though most of us in this room are saved, if the roof caves in, we're going to heaven. It's not a matter of whether or not we're making it to heaven. If you are saved, if you're a believer and follower of Jesus Christ, you'll make it to heaven. But that doesn't mean everything in you has died that needs to die. There are things in each of us that still need to die. I want to make a difference in this life. I want to hear him speak those six words, well done, good and faithful servant. And if we want to be great use to God, we have to make sure we identify things in our lives or in our past life that need to die. And we push them aside and we live for Jesus Christ. Amen? It's always because men and women have been prepared to die that the great things have lived. Truth number two we find in verse 25. And this is a slight paraphrase of what Barclay said. I, I in this case, did think I could say it a little bit better. <laughs> Not because I'm arrogant. He used an archaic word I didn't think was going to work. So only by giving up our lives... Do we retain life? Say that with me. Only by giving up our lives do we retain life. Let's let that sink in. Only by giving up our lives do we retain life. Interesting. People who live for me, myself, and I are usually motivated by two things. Number one, they're motivated by the seeking of pleasure. And number two, they're motivated by the seeking of safety. Selfish people are usually focused on pursuing cravings. And pursuing security. And Jesus comes on the scene in verse 25 and says, I don't want you to pursue either. What? (laughs) How many of you would honestly say today, you know, Pastor, I do not ever, under any circumstances, like to have any fun. Some of you are like, oh, no, wait. I hate having fun. I do not like pleasure. I want to be bored all the time. I want to be frowning all the time. If someone says, do you want to go do something fun? I immediately say, no way. I'm not interested. Selfish people pursue selfish cravings and fun. They also pursue security. How many of you would honestly say, I never, ever want to play it safe? Oh, yeah? What's the speed limit out there on Highway 18? 55. Woohoo! Here I go. I'm going to go jogging down the middle of Highway 18. I don't like to be safe. Of course, we all want to be safe at times, right? We all want to experience some pleasure at times. Yet Jesus says here in 25 that we are to hate those things. Wow. Hate both pleasure and security. That doesn't seem to jive with the way we normally think. Notice how Barclay expands on this. He writes this. He says, The world owes everything to people who recklessly spent their strength and gave themselves to God and to others. No doubt we will exist longer if we take things easily, if we avoid all strain, if we sit by the fire and do nothing, if we look after ourselves like hypochondriacs look after their health. No doubt we'll exist longer, but we will never really live. Is he right? Brothers and sisters in Christ, I urge you, to hate your own selfishness. I urge you to hate your own laziness. Hate sitting on the sidelines and letting all the other Christians do the dirty work. 
hate those things that are of our old nature and our old life. So is Jesus telling us in this verse that we should never have any fun? No, he's not saying that at all. He's saying we should never experience pleasure on in this life. No, I think Christians should have more fun in this life than anyone. But the problem is when we pursue the pleasure over the one who created the pleasure. When we per- pursue the entertainment instead of pursuing the one who has blessed us with entertainment. So often that is what our idol is. We chase after things instead of chasing after the creator of things. Jesus makes it so clear, only by giving up our lives do you retain life. Do you want to experience life to the fullest? Then give it away. If you want to experience life to the fullest, then don't play it safe all the time. Sometimes you've got to just take a flyer. Say, you know what? I'm not very good at inviting people to church, but Jesus said I should do it, so I'm going to do it anyway. This may be the absolute worst invitation to church in the history of the world. But dang it, I'm going to do it. I'm going to take a risk because he has not called me to play it safe. So he doesn't want you to run out in the middle of traffic, but take some risks for the kingdom. Finally, truth number three, verse 26, only by service comes greatness. I quoted him on this because I thought it was so well said. And once again, I would have taken way too many words to say the exact same thing. Say it with me. Only by service comes greatness. Let it sink in. Only by service comes greatness. Only by service comes greatness. So many people live their lives serving one person themselves. They get to the end of their lives and there's not much to show for it because they were just living for themselves. I'm so thankful that so many of you in this church are the exact opposite of this. You're not living for yourselves. You're living for Christ and His glory and you're living for others. What a beautiful way to live. This past Wednesday, we celebrated the life of one of our sweet saints in this church, Melly Bond. She was a part of this church for well over 30 years. And those of you who have been a part of our church for a while probably remember that back when we were at our old building, year after year, Melly would be standing at that front door smiling with that big smile and handing out those bulletins as we came into church. Who knows how many tens of thousands of bulletins she handed out over the years. But that was her thing, man. She loved being there to greet people, to love on them, to smile, and to share those bulletins. And it was probably, I don't know, maybe six years ago or so, Melly's MS, or multiple sclerosis, had developed to a point where she could no longer stand on her legs for any length of time. She had had MS for something like 20 years at that point, but she never let on. She never let us know about her pain or discomfort. She just kept serving, kept smiling, kept giving her life for others. But about six years ago, she couldn't stand and hand out bulletins anymore, so did Melly throw in the towel? Nope. She just sat down on her walker and continued handing out bulletins with that big smile on her face. And then COVID happened, the lockdown in 2020. And so she was confined to her retirement community where she lives. And about three years ago, I think it was, the MS progressed to a point where she couldn't get out of bed. And so there she was over the last two to three years, flat on her back in her hospital bed in her room. And finally, she was able to give up, right? Nope. I'd go over to visit Melly. Some of you would go to visit Melly, and inevitably you would see her with large spools of yarn all over her on her bed because there she was crocheting like the wind, making these little crocheted beanies for friends and family members and even the homeless. And I'd go over there and inevitably at the end of the visit, make sure you take the bag of beanies. And it was over there by the front door and I'd take this big bag stuffed full of all these beanies that she was popping out at like one every week and a half or something. And who knows over the last three years how many dozens upon dozens of these beanies she was making with that same smile on her face, with that same desire to serve. And I remember it was about two years ago we took some of the teenagers from our church out into downtown Victorville on a Friday night. And we had bags full of Melly's beanies and we were looking for homeless men and women. And we saw them over at that Harbor Freight strip mall uh, off of the Roy Rogers Street, whatever they call it at that point. 
And so we're there, and there's these men and women, homeless, walking around the parking lot. And so we go up to each one of them. We're handing out these beanies. And after we had done that and emptied the bag, we stepped back from the edge of the parking lot and looked at the parking lot. And across the way, we could see men and women with the hats on their heads, bearing testimony to the goodness of a wonderful lady flat on her back who would not stop serving. What an example. And as we went to that service this last week, there was no doubt in anyone's mind, Nellie Bond lived a great life because she understood what we so often miss, that great lives are lived because of service. It's service that makes our life great. Only by service comes greatness. And so if you want to get to the end of your life and know that you have lived a life that was great before God and before those who know you best, don't clench to your life. Give it away for the glory of God, for the advancement of Jesus Christ's kingdom, and for the good of others. We have so many opportunities here at Impact to be a blessing and to serve. Next week, I'm excited that some of you will get to meet Margaret Brown for the first time, the director of Rose of Sharon. Throughout the week, every week, those ladies are over there at the pregnancy center ministering to young women going through crisis pregnancies, getting them diapers, uh, getting them wipes, uh, getting them whatever they need to be able to bring their child into the world and take care of those needs. There's so many opportunities around us. Let's make sure we pursue this greatness like Jesus says by giving our lives in service to others. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do love you. And we do thank you for this wonderful example you've given us of service. Thank you, Lord. For saying not what the crowd wanted to hear, but sharing the truth that they needed to hear. That your glory would not come by wielding a sword, but it would come through wielding a cross. That your glory would not come by seeing others around you die, but by laying down your life and dying yourself. Thank you, Lord, for telling us and teaching us that we can experience true life to its fullness by giving our lives. And I pray, Lord, that each of us would do that. May we not cling to our lives so tightly that we miss the golden opportunities to serve those around us. Help us to be servants. Help us to be sacrificial in the way that we live for the glory of God and the advancement of the kingdom of Jesus Christ and the blessing of those around us. And I pray if there's anyone here who's never accepted you as Savior and Lord, that right now they would pray with me, Lord Jesus, please forgive me for my sins. I believe that you are the Christ and the Son of the living God. I ask you to come into my life I ask you to wash my sins away. I place you in the driver's seat of my life right now. And I promise I will trust you, love, and obey you for the rest of my life until you call me home to heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.